Welcome to Pebble in the Pond, a podcast that hopes to create a ripple of change for mental health. My name is Sam Stewart and I'm the CEO of the Australian and New Zealand Mental Health Association. Each year I have the pleasure of attending events to meet and connect with the most fascinating and accomplished people in mental health. Listen in as I go one-on-one with the people changing the face of mental health in Australia and New Zealand, from lived experience speakers through to researchers, academics and influential industry leaders. Our Pebble in the Pond podcast episodes may contain themes or topics of discussion that may be triggering to some listeners. If you feel you need assistance with your mental health at any time, please contact Lifeline on 13 11 14 or visit the Get Help page for additional resources at anzmh.asn.au. Hello listeners and welcome to episode 9, season 2 of our podcast. Thanks very much for tuning in and today's episode is with a gentleman by the name of Stuart Auckland. As part of the National Suicide Prevention Trial, many of you may know the Australian Government is supporting the implementation and evaluation of 12 suicide prevention trial sites across Australia. One of the individuals responsible for its implementation is Stuart Auckland, whose current role is a co-investigator of the Tasmanian component of the National Suicide Prevention Trial. As part of the National Suicide Prevention Trial, in fact, strategies are being implemented by community structures at three Tasmanian sites to prevent suicide at a local level and for at-risk populations. The local evaluation is focusing on key process outcomes, such as the effectiveness of local governance structures, the efficacy of frameworks and supporting capacity building. Listen in as Stuart discusses the outcomes of these strategies and what has been learnt so far in our national approach to suicide prevention. All right, welcome to the Pebble in the Pond podcast. Today with me, I have Stuart Auckland from Tasmania. Stuart, welcome. Yep, welcome. How are you, Sam? I'm really well. Thanks very much for coming to join us on the podcast and share your story and what you've been up to with, uh, with our listeners. I'm really interested to see and hear more about what you've been doing uh, especially recently, but if you want to start with just giving us a bit of a introduction into your journey to the position you're in within Tasmania and the, the PHT. Okay, um, thanks very much. Well, just to, uh, I guess, provide a bit of context about myself and particularly as it relates to mental health and wellbeing in a rural context. Um, I work at the University of Tasmania at a centre called the Centre for Rural Health and uh, we're a a research-focused organisation. It's part of a nationally, fund, nationally funded uh, program. Um, we are the only one in Tasmania. and We're hosted by the University of Tasmania. We have, as an organisation, we have a very broad research interest in all matters that relate to the health and well-being of people that live in rural and remote communities. And uh, generally, Tasmania is, uh, by and large, classified as a regional and rural um, place, island. So the whole state falls under that? Absolutely, with the exception of, I think, the Hobart CBD, which of course is only a very small area, but generally the whole state does. It ranges from a high level of remoteness being the islands of Flinders and King Island to a regional level, which are basically the rural areas uh, and regional areas around around the island, the main island of Mm. of Tasmania. So essentially that's our our function. Um, We as an organisation address, as I said, all health issues that uh, all issues that impact on the health and well-being of rural Tasmanians, of course, mental health being one, unfortunately, it's becoming increasingly important. So in my portfolio, I I work in uh, community health development. I sort of look after that program area of research that we do and uh, mental health is a large component of that. So I guess um, in terms of where mental health fits for me is the fact that it's, uh, as I said, an area that's getting, uh, as far as we're concerned, increasing importance. So Mm. we have opportunities to work in that space as part of a, I guess, a university network. We're often brought into work with rural communities. We're seen very much as an independent broker around health and wellbeing. And we do a lot of work around evaluation. So we're quite often asked to come in to evaluate um, on the ground programs around suicide prevention, uh, which include the one that I'm currently involved in local evaluation of the National Suicide Prevention Trial, which Tasmania is one one site. Yeah. So prior to working for the Centre for Rural Health, where how did you get into it okay well i my background i originally i've always worked in a rural context my original undergraduate studies 
and first 10 years of my working life were in um, agriculture and natural resource management. So oh. I was working very much in what they like to term an extension role. So it's working face to face with farmer, farmer organisations, so on and so forth. This is in Tassie? In, uh, initially in uh, Western Australia okay. and then subsequently in New South Wales and, and my last uh, five or so years in that space working in Tasmania. And that was uh, around about the late 90s. Um, I had a call from the then director of the University Department of Rural Health who contacted me, heard about my work in with rural communities, particularly around resource management and so on and so forth. And I guess the links that I created with with uh, with those communities and she essentially said to me look uh, would you be interested in coming to work for the university department of rural health and at the time i didn't have any um, uh, tertiary qualifications in health i made that very clear i said look my background's in agriculture and resource management and community development not in health yeah and she said well that's exactly what we're looking for she said i have a core group of people here i'm establishing a program called the university department of rural health in tasmania I got some excellent clinicians working in this space, but I'm looking for people who have experience in uh, rural engagement, community engagement, have experience in connections, have experience in project management, so on and so forth. So I'm not looking for someone mm. who is, uh, uh, you know, a cut and a die hard in the wool uh, clinical person. Mm. It's part of complementing the whole team. And I said, well, as long as we're clear on that, I'd love to come and work for you. So that was uh, about 21 years ago. So I came on board then. Uh, it was a very small organisation at those time. There was only about three or four of us. I came on board as basically the senior project manager, basically coordinate the work they were doing at the time. Wow, and that's about the turn of the century. Turn of the century it was yeah. indeed. You're making me feel very old now, Sam. No, no, that's okay. No, no, I was, so, I mean, that just goes to show the experience you've had, I mean, and the yes. consistency, yep. but also... Yep. I mean, the exposure and, and the contribution that you've probably made over this 20 years. Absolutely. And, and yeah, indeed. And, and I've, as I said, worked in that space. My first job was really to uh, develop a community engagement portfolio for the organisation so it could better work with rural communities and actually link the specialists we had on board with the rural communities. So that's where I came in in that space. And obviously, since that time, 20 odd years, I've... Uh, Done a lot of work in that health space, so you know my credentials in that area are quite significant now, given the experience that I've had. How important is that community engagement side? Obviously, obviously they contacted you with uh, respect out of your rapport mm. and your relationship with mm. with rural and remote communities in Tassie. I mean, that's community engagement. Tell us about that and the importance uh, of that. I mean, this is twenty years ago, which yep. is remarkable. Absolutely, but... yep. Look, it's it's cornerstone to everything we do. Um, without doubt. And, you know, you often have heard the, the comment about universities being the ivory tower. You know, there's a bunch of people, we call ourselves academics, we sit there, we publish papers, we do research, and I guess the missing link has always been, and, and, and to a large extent continues to be, mm -hmm. how we can actually translate that work back into the community. So engagement, community engagement, if you like, is actually the, the process in which links our research, work, to the community. So um, if you're not making that link, essentially, you're not actually being part of a change process. Well, you're so not it's fundamental. Right? You're not being effective. Mm. Um, so one of the wonderful things about working in Tasmania, because we are a small island, we're you know population just over half a million, um, it, is, it is a wonderful melting pot where change can happen because of the connections that you can have. And, you know, the, the I guess the connections between university and rural community. Um, being a contained island are quite, are quite small, so we, we have that opportunity. But getting back to your question, absolutely fundamental. If you haven't got that mechanism to engage community, to get community reflecting on its health and well-being, and actually providing, it's a two-way process, providing that feedback to the university about what their needs are, you really could be just prodding around in the dark and doing stuff that's really not a necessarily appropriate or relevant to your immediate community or B, uh, not having any impact. And bear in mind, of course, we are the only university on the island. So what we do with our constituents, our mm. population, matters. Mm. Well, it's critical, isn't it? Mm. Uh, Absolutely. So, so in, your, in your, I guess, 20 years or so in the role um, that you've been doing with uh, the Rural Health, Centre for Rural Health and, and University of Tasmania, how have you seen mental health evolve, adapt? How have you seen... How have you seen it? What's your, what's your yeah. thoughts? Um, look. Respect I, to Tasmania. Really. Yeah. Uh, there's been some positives and there's also been some areas where unfortunately there hasn't been change. Uh, well, I haven't witnessed change. 
Uh, we can dwell on the positive first. What, I, what I'm seeing in particular is the emergence of some uh, grassroots service providers that in our state um, who are doing tremendous work. And one that comes to mind is an organisation called Rural Live and Well, who I had the privilege of working with um, not so long ago, a couple of years ago, who are basically a, um, a suicide prevention mental health organisation working at the grassroots directly with farmers. Uh, using traditional means of engaging farmers um, and some of the the impact that I'm seeing that they're doing in particular uh, is really quite significant. So there's organisations like that. Um, we have another organisation called Speak Up and Stay Chatty. Uh, again, seeing high profile, a lot of level of awareness in the state. So on the positive note, I'm seeing a lot of communities starting to take actions for themselves. Mm. Um, so I'm seeing change there and actually making contact and and, and in some ways influencing policy at the government level. And has, have those trends been community driven or has it been including them in the conversation? I think it's, it's probably a little bit of both, okay. uh, a bit of both. It, certainly it's including them in the conversation. Co-design yep. is really important. Consultations is really important. But in many ways, I think a lot of communities that I'm finding, rural communities, are getting tired of waiting for change. Yeah. So they're actually taking actions themselves. I mean, there's one community in Tasmania now, which unfortunately went through a spate of quite a number of, uh, in a short period of time, suicides in their community. Um, clearly change wasn't going to um, happen very quickly. Members of the community, they themselves got, got active. They brought themselves together. They lobbied hard for change. They got the community involved in, 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 in looking at uh, what they needed bringing on board those support services, talking to support services about how they might be able to help them. So that situation very much community driven. In other situations, it has been organisations like, uh, uh, for example, Primary Health Tasmania, PHN Network, who are actually seeing the value in engaging community and working with community and actually looking at how um, uh, interventions can be actually uh, designed, co-designed with them and actually, you know, working with them in that regard. Yeah. So then if you focus, if we then start to look at the things that haven't been doing that well over the last 20 years, where would you start with that? Well, I think they're, they're probably the things that are harder to change. I mean, the, the, the main barriers for change in my, in, my problem, in, in my view are things like the political cycles, you know, the funding cycles that we're yeah. all familiar with. It's very hard to get traction and change when you have such a short-term cycle. Mm. That's a real issue for communities. Um, there are things that we can't change easily, and there are things like infrastructure and, and, and access. Rural communities, by their very nature, are isolated. Um, a lot of the support services that we, sign, we, we find now that are available through service providers are online. We have places in Tasmania now where, um, you know, uh, the, the you know, access to the internet, for example, is, is, is very difficult. Um, uh, we have issues around mental health literacy. Are people, you know, not knowing what, you know, people say, well, they just, you know, they're just not aware of what's out there. So there are those issues. There are issues about access to service, the distances between the rural yeah. community and the doctors and so on and so forth. Um, and, and, and problems within health services themselves about, yeah. you know, the support we, you know, we need to be giving to the first line, first line responders as well, yeah. including GPs, about the sort of support that they do so they know when they're faced with um, this sort of issue, where they can actually go to and direct or refer their client or their patients to, to get support. So they're the things that I think we're continuously battling against and will continue to battle against for quite a while. The workforce, is the workforce, is, is it, do people find it difficult to, uh, to, get this, to, to get people trained and skilled down there to help? Yeah, look, again, um, at one level, yes, very much. Um, workforce is an issue. Attracting and uh, retaining and recruiting um, appropriately skilled people into rural areas has been a, a long-time problem, uh, continues to be in places like Tasmania. Um, but where there has been some support, there's a number of uh, organisations that are now accredited trainers and they're getting out and reaching out into the community and providing um, training of through things like train the trainer. So, you know, you're getting that flow on effect. So you're getting organisations that are actually um, going out into communities, providing training, getting people upskilled, um, and then they themselves are then going on and providing further training. So again, at that level, yes, there's a lot of, a lot of um, activity in that space. Um, 
a lot of that's driven by community demand, saying we want, you know, we want to know what to do, we want to be able to help our community. Can you come in and bring in your service and your training so we can do that? So there's quite a fair bit of that happening on the ground at the moment. The more we can do, the better. I think some vulnerable communities in particular are probably not getting the attention that they particularly need. It's not necessarily targeting um, high-risk communities, um, but it's more of a population type approach, if you like. So um, it, it, in some instances, there are programs now starting to be more target specific to youth, uh, yeah. indigenous communities, LGBTI communities, and so on mm. and so forth, because their needs are quite distinct mm. uh, in that space. And sometimes some of the more generic training programs don't necessarily um, provide the type of um, support that they need. Yeah. Do you think the awareness uh, and education is then coming along a fair way now uh, compared to what it has in, in 20 years ago, or do you feel like you still got a long way to go? I, th I think we better understand it now, but whether or not that's translating to greater levels of awareness is, is, is unsure. We're certainly starting to realise what some of the problems are that are actually some of the barriers to raising awareness. I mentioned a moment ago about uh, health literacy. I mean, that's mental health literacy in particular, you know, we're now starting to see the significant um, issue that that is in terms of getting people to understand what the issues are. Stig stigma continues to be a problem. Um, yeah. I think there's a lot of emphasis on, on uh, how do we actually uh, reduce levels of st stigma. And I think now I'm, I'm seeing improvements in that place. I think we're seeing people now actually um, coming forward and, and saying, look, I'm struggling. Um, I'm having a problem, I need help. Yeah. So. That's telling us that the stigmatisation of, of mental health issues is, is seems to be reducing. I think there's a lot of campaigns that are actually showing showing that. I think the other area that we've improved greatly in is in reporting of things like suicide. Um, you know, some of our newspapers and our TV stations now, whenever there's an article that uh, sorry, a, 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 an article or a presentation which is particularly sensitive, we are noting that the language that's used is 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 much more um, much more sensitive. We actually have a, a mental health communication charter in, in Tasmania now that we that has been um, uh, presented to um, a lot of people that are working in the mental health space and they've signed up to that. And as part of that charter, there's a strong emphasis on uh, language and terminology and, and how to be uh, sensitive in your reporting on things around suicide, uh, yeah. issues around suicide, which I think is a great leap forward. Mm. Mm. Well, it sounds like things are, I mean, they're certainly progressing, but it sounds like we're still, like most part, places in Australia, still got a long way to go. But what would you say is currently the biggest challenge with regards to mental health in Tasmania at the moment? Um, or a couple? Yeah. Uh, I think support services, access to support services is, is the, the number one. Yeah. Um, and I think the fragmentation of, of those services, the lack of coordination of services is the other one. You know, we, we have um, areas where two or three service providers are in providing, you know, I won't say identical services, but complementary services, and yet they're not linked up. Um, I think that's a major issue. I think the services uh, in many instances are on the ground, but they're certainly not coordinated. Uh, they're fragmented. Um, there seems to be uh, competition at times, particularly for funding, where those, fundings, those services rely on external funding. So that's a problem with funding the funding model as well. Mm. Um, but I'm pleased to say that there are moves afoot to try and address that. So, um, so something is happening to try and address. Yeah, I, th I think so. We're we're, we're part. That's exactly right. Yeah. We're, and one of the ways they're doing that is they're looking at assessing uh, commission work around suicide prevention or mental health. Is you know it's important to show in your um, submission that you are working with other providers and that there is uh, a process in which you are partnering, collaborating, linking with other providers to, you know, value add to the service in the area. And that's becoming really important for those people that are actually funding those services. So it's basically forcing, forcing organisations on the ground to actually start talking to one another rather than seeing them as competitors. I mean, it seems so simple. I mean, it seems just so obvious, but I mean, like the practicality and the application of it, yet it's just, I don't know, it just seems like it takes a while, doesn't it, for them to get to yeah, what they Yeah, it does. But then, 
you know, I can only speak of Tasmania because that's yeah. where I've spent a great deal of my working life. And, yeah. you know, we're, we're a fascinating island to work with community uh, for, for a whole lot of reasons, but there are some really positive things and yeah. there are some negative things. And we, we, we tend to be very parochial and the thing that's difficult at times to see is that, you know, you have a small region, even within that region, there's competition between one town and another town. And, and, you know, really at the end of the day, if the two towns could get their resources together, mm. they could they could work wonder. Um, uh, but, you know, it's just a cultural thing, you know, it's a difficult thing to deal with. And, you know, for me as a, I guess, a practitioner in that space, part of my challenge is, is to actually break those, break those cultural yes. divides down, yeah. yeah, yeah. And see that there's value in working together rather than competing. Yeah. Well, it makes sense with resources as well, like mm. you were saying, not just funding, but people, skills. I mean, it's... Yeah, yeah. Social capital, as we call yeah. it, the different, the human capital, the, the social capital and so on and so forth. And how do you harness that? Um, and there's there's a tremendous amount of uh, local knowledge. Mm. And I, I think at times some of our models haven't necessarily reflected that local knowledge about how to bring those that local knowledge and get give a voice to that local knowledge. And I think we're starting to see that. So the traditional top-down approach is not really getting that, has, hasn't really got the traction and the results that we would like to have thought, thought it would. So I think we're starting to see, particularly through the suicide prevention trials, mm. more of a bottom-up approach, approach in Tasmania in particular. Yeah, certainly looking forward to getting into that. Do, do you feel like the 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 state government i mean do you find that mental health is a priority uh amongst what they're doing oh, look i i again there's been some pos- positive moves we have okay. a, a minister whose portfolio now is mental health which yeah. is fantastic um we haven't had that previously um we have some tremendous programs happening particularly for youth with mm. uh headspace and so on and that's you know we're seeing uh the expansion of that program traditionally it's been centered in uh, in in uh, in the cities in Launceston and Hobart, we're now seeing increase of services on the northwest coast, where rates of uh, mental health yeah. um, are quite issues are quite high, um, significantly quite high. So I think there is change there, and I think government is is really recognising the need for that um, and the need to get behind and support that. So I, yes, I, I think I think that's definitely changing. So if we move to the national suicide prevention trial. This uh, Tasmania, well, three areas within Tasmania have been identified mm. as one of the 12 that they were setting up in the trial mm. to try to better or be more effective at reducing or preventing suicide. How, uh, where, where are we up to in that? It's a four-year program, right? Uh, it's due for conclusion at June, end of June 2020. Okay. So it's now in its final phase, if you like. Um, it basically Tasmania came board came on board in that 2017. So what are we now? Two three years? Have we been okay. going? Um, we weren't one of the first sites to come on board. We were a bit later in, in, in the sites. Um, what what I'm seeing now is those sites are now starting to uh, implement their activities. We're using the lifespan model through the um, Black Dog Institute, yep. um, and we're now. I think the first 12 months was really very much about the sites getting their head around uh, the whole trial, uh, that, you know, building the relationships both within the, the, the working groups, which are the structures that are driving those activities, but also within the, those regions. And that's not in any way um, a negative comment. I mean, that, that process has to happen, you know, had to happen. And I think they've done extremely well in the time they have to get to the point now where they're actually delivering activities on the ground. And, you know, there was a, a, a period there where there wasn't much activity. There were kind of meetings, drafting action plans and so on and so forth. And there wasn't much what traction. What was that roughly like a year of that? Around about a year. Yeah. yeah, around about a year there were people coming and going from the working groups. But I think we're seeing a lot more stability in that space now. And they're getting down and getting their hands dirty and really getting out into the community and doing some, some tremendous work. What's your role within that? Okay, so so my role, um, the, the the National Suicide Prevention Trial uh, is being uh, evaluated nationally by the University of Melbourne. So they have a responsibility for doing an overall evaluation uh, of the 12 sites, as you mentioned earlier, including Tasmania. Mm-hmm. When that came on board, um, we had some discussions with Primary Health Tasmania, who are the I guess the administering organisation for the trial in, in, in Tasmania, I believe in other sites as well. 
and we said, look, this is fantastic that we've got the University of Melbourne on board. Um, we feel that we can value add to, to that evaluation by uh, complementing the work that's doing there and do some local evaluation. And then we can sort of fill in the gaps, if you like, because we knew that, or we, not that we knew, we had a sense that the, the scope of the work for the National Evaluator was so broad, it would be, uh, there was a high risk that some of the key issues may not be picked up in the evaluation. So we said, well, look, let's work with the University of Melbourne and do a local evaluation of those three sites. And we, um, we, we, we had discussions with PhD and they looked at our request and, and we were very fortunate and grateful that they were to, 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 to come forward and make some resources available to do that. So we now work with them very closely as we do with the University of Melbourne and the Black Dog Institute. Uh, in delivering the local evaluation. So what we tend to focus on is, is mainly on some of the, I guess, the processes rather than the outputs. For example, I talk about the working, uh, the working groups and we ask questions about are they, you know, we evaluate the appropriateness of those structures. Uh, what's working within those structures? Are there appropriate structures to take a community-based approach to suicide prevention forward? Or are there other ways or better ways of doing it? How are those decisions made? What's governance like? What's the leadership in the community like? All those sorts of things. So we're not focused so much on um, uh, evaluating the, the outcomes as such or the outputs, but more on the processes. We are, of course, doing some output evaluation, particularly as they relate to external stakeholders. The, 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 the other thing that we, we are doing as evaluators, we're using a participatory action research approach, which means that we're actually working alongside the community in designing the evaluation processes and getting them to reflect on their needs. And what that means is basically we are helping them through capacity building, uh, for example, to make some decisions about what do they want to evaluate, why do they want to evaluate, because you don't necessarily have to evaluate, evaluate everything. It's the old saying that, you know, not everything that counts needs to be counted yeah. and not everything that's counted needs to be it counts basically yeah. so we we it's a capacity building approach with them so, so the lifespan approach that was so when so they chose the 12 sites initially yes and then the rollout of this was were they encouraged or you had to actually use the lifespan approach or is it um, um, the the lifespan approach was was selected as the as the model okay. that or the framework that Tasmania would use. So yes, you you know, and we are, uh, as I said earlier, our population is men forty and above, and men and women sixty four and above. Every site has a different population cohort. Now, um, the lifespan model, as I said a moment ago, was what they were requested to use. So yeah. they can't necessarily use all the nine strategies, yeah. uh, they themselves need to determine or did determine which particular strategies were most relevant for their community. Okay, and that was led by the PhD in Tasmania? Uh, that was, that was led or by university. the community, but okay. it was supported by the Primary Health Tasmania. Okay. So what they had to do, just to give you some practical context for how it works on the ground, is they were presented by the Black Dog Institute, they yeah. were introduced to the lifespan model, which you have in front of you there, yeah. Every one of those nine strategies was explained very clearly to each of the three sites yeah. and with some practical ideas about what they can do. Now, they weren't told you must do strategy one, two or three. Okay. They were then went away, they reflected on their learning and they said, I think in our community, we are, we'll go with strategy number six, seven and eight. Okay. So that's how they did that. I get it. Okay, yeah. and then Launceston, Brackaday and then Bernie, they yeah. may have different parts of that that are being implemented. Correct, yeah. Every every site would have focused on, on a different okay. strategy. But what we are finding, interestingly enough, all those three sites tended to work more with those strategies that had direct linkages with training, support, education, rather than necessarily workforce and policy change. Mm. Um, and, and look, whilst we haven't done the evaluation, it's probably not surprising in the sense that whilst you could probably argue if you do strategy one, which relates to, I think, pathways, yeah. um, you are starting to work within the broader health system, which as you'd appreciate is quite often harder to change. Mm. Whereas some of the community uh, responses, actions, working with media, uh, issues around uh, supporting community change, when you're dealing with a community, they're probably ones that you can actually do more readily yeah, and have 
you know, it can make change. So in, in some essence, it's probably not surprising that that's the way it's panning out. Mm, that's interesting. Because obviously, implement, so the implementation of these is, and, and I agree, I mean, to, to do nine of them would be really, I mean, you'd almost get nothing done because you're trying to do everything poorly, but to narrow down on three, three or so makes Correct. really good sense. Yep. Um, so tell us about, so, this, so, with, with, so with Tasmania itself, the age brackets 40 to 60 year old, 64 year old yes, males. Yes. And then men and women over yes. 65 with special yep. consideration of 75 yep. as well. Yep. Tell, tell, tell us what's the what's what's been the, the trend there or is there been what, what's um, well it's one of the things that we are observing when we look at the yeah well one of the issues we are finding there in particularly with the activities is whilst that is our target population we're certainly finding when the groups roll out activities um, uh, you don't necessarily just get that group mm. you know you'll you'll get you'll get yeah. women coming along and and that's fine it's you yeah. know it, it reflects the need basically um so whilst that is very much uh the target population that's not necessarily all activities certainly uh for example the groups are working very closely with cota the counseling of, of the age of the age um and they're doing training workshops now obviously that's the the pick body or the advocacy group if you like mm. for uh, uh, the age population, so they're working very closely with them to look at ways in which they can better uh, engage that particular cohort. So there are examples where that cohort is actually guiding the types of activities yeah. that, that are being, being, being uh, uh, rolled out. And, and specifically as it related to the target within this, for this trial, mm. The is it the the males forty to sixty four? Is it is it in the farming communities that they're isolated? There is it. The, look, it's. Um, was there any research behind? Yeah, look, the 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 reason behind that is 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 based on evidence that we yeah. are seeing that this is a I guess these are cohorts of significant uh, issue, okay. um, and what we're also finding is that quite often they are also uh, potentially the cohorts that aren't accessing the needs of services out there. So mm. it's, a, it's a double-edged sword. So, you know, men are notoriously, particularly that age group, notoriously hard to engage. Yeah. So by focusing on that, potentially we can actually better engage them in the process. At the same time, acknowledging that that is also a, a group that is a significant high levels of suicide. Yeah. 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 yeah, well. So then if we look at the, so the evaluation process, yep. so we're, we're about a year, well, what are we now, seven, eight yep. months away from the completion, yep. uh, and there's still some indecision about what's happening, yep. if that's going to continue Correct. to go, right? Yep. Um, how, how have you found it on the evaluation side? Because now you're in the implementation stage, it feels like, yep. that the activities are happening, we've identified yep. the challenges within yep. those three areas. Yep. And we're rolling out these initiatives, yeah. which are really good. Yeah. How you're finding the evaluation part to say, well, how effective is this going? Yeah. I mean, one thing we said from the onset was the evaluation, because of the scope of the evaluation, we can't come to some conclusion whether at the end of the day um, any change in suicide levels is, is going to be attributed directly to yeah. the to the to the it's uh, difficult. very difficult to yeah. do. There are too many variables. Um, but what we do hope to learn from the process is what is working at a local level, particularly in terms of building levels of sustainability. What works, uh, what doesn't work and what works. So at the end of the trial, when we go back to PhD and we'll say, well, look, you know, our evidence suggests that this is a, a, a good strategy or this is a not such a good strategy, we can make some recommendations. So that's part of what we do. The other part of what we do, we are actually putting together a, um, a resource kit. Now, what that looks like at this point, we're in the process of consulting. So we're saying to the communities, how do you want this knowledge to be presented back to you? So there's something beyond the life of the trial, mm -hmm. some resource kit or some sort of uh, tool, website, whatever it may be. Yeah. And what does it, you know, there's a whole gamut of questions around that. What does it look like? How, you know, what's the best format for it? What's in it? That's one of the last things we'll be doing because we're going to draw on our learnings. And that be something that hopefully will actually contribute to the sustainability. Yeah. Um, yes, you're right. We don't know what's happening with funding. We, we, at this point, nobody knows. We know that the trial ends on the 30th of June, yeah. 2020. Um, but obviously, there'll be a suite of recommendations that we will be responsible for, and presumably the University of Melbourne will do likewise for the national evaluation, which will inform what needs to come forward at the end of this.
Yeah, so, uh, so well, that makes sense. Mm. So, so obviously, towards the end of this ter- term, um, mm. we're going to be looking at ways of recommendations for what to do moving forward mm. so that it doesn't just stop even mm. if the funding mm. stops, but there's mm. a legacy or mm. uh, a process mm. in place mm. that gives people access and tools to mm. try. And-, mm. and, I, and I think what we need to be very wary of here, you know, um, communities, as long as I've been working with them, are very savvy about funding cycles. And we're getting to a point now where communities are actually standing up Mm. and they're not putting their hand up for funding Mm. if they don't think that this is actually going to be something that is going to be of value to them in the long term. You know, back when I started working with communities, there wasn't a lot of resources out there. They, you know, communities would take whatever funding was available and they would use it. And there wouldn't be that thinking, long-term thinking. What we're seeing now is communities are actually voting and saying, you know, we want to be involved in this. We, we understand, you know, the importance of actually having a sustainability plan moving forward. And we think that we can actually develop something given the design of this. So, so they're actually selecting things, funding opportunities that are, that are actually going to be a longer term benefit for the community. And they're saying no to those other ones that they just think are um, opportunistic and one off because they think that's probably this is what I'm seeing and hearing, uh, going to do more bad for the community than it will do good. Because mm. you want a lasting impact, right? Absolutely, absolutely. And, you know, th- things like mental health in communities, they are things that go to the core of the community. Mm. And, uh, you know, there's a lot of expectancies that, um, uh, you know, that there will be longer-term benefits. With... Uh... With the local evaluation mm-hmm. uh, that you've been doing with the, the PAR, uh, participatory action, action yep. research, so and evaluating the work. So tell me about the challenges that you've been faced with, with that and the opportunities. Yeah, look, I think in understanding a participatory action research approach, um, it's, it's a, a quite a novel approach. It, it, it's, it's the flip side of a traditional evaluation approach where essentially um, you are provided with funds, you design the approach, you design the evaluation methodology, you go and you, d- you, you determine what it is you want to find out and you go and work on the community. With PAR, actually work in partnership with, with, the, with the community. So there's that sort of shift of power from those that are doing the research to those who have been researched. So it gives them a very strong say about what is it they need, what support they need, what they want to evaluate in this case, uh, and how they want to evaluate it and why they want to evaluate it. And the role of the researcher in this case is actually just mainly to ask the questions, why, how, it's a learning process for them, and then to provide that scaffolding that they need so that they actually, they themselves are actually controlling and owning the process. So with that comes an inherent lot of problems. And those problems, as we've experienced, are very much around what if you're working with a community where um, that, you know, communities don't necessarily know what they don't know. So there's an assumption there that there's a level of understanding about the evaluation process already in place place, Mm -hmm. so that they can actually ask the questions or respond to the questions that you ask them. Now, what we find in some communities, uh, particularly where evaluations are not necessarily the done thing all the time, that level of understanding awareness is is not there. So that becomes problematic. The other issue under a PAR approach is because you are, as a researcher, you're acting more as a, an observer who is encouraging those people to reflect and, and then action, reflection and action, reflection, you, you are not being in a directive role. So you're not actually telling them what they need to be doing. And quite often you might be in a forum where there is some discussion around an issue and you know you're compelled to to intervene and say well no that's not the right approach or you should be doing that which is not part of a PAR yeah you don't and that can it's be quite frustrating absolutely and mm-hmm. it can be quite frustration frustrating in the time that you know just to the time needed to get them to come to that realization or for them to actually become aware of that so there are some inherent issues around that approach particularly when you're actually basically handing over a lot of that ownership and that design to the community, which theoretically is, is wonderful because it's acknowledging that level of knowledge in the community, but in practice can be problematic. Yeah. But you get their buy-in. I mean, and that's- Absolutely. The, and that's the, I mean, if they get told that this is what they got to do, all of a sudden they're like, yeah, mm. yep. 
you obviously invented or you thought this up somewhere yep. and you haven't involved us. Yep. So, no. That's right. And, and look, understanding boundaries. Um, you know, we, we, we as an evaluation team, part of our job was to hopefully make clear what exactly are, is the scope of the PAR and what our role is and what their role is. Now, you know, that can be quite difficult because, you know, we still have instances where, for example, there are, they made some assumption that uh, they'll organize an activity and we'll come in and we'll evaluate it for them. You know, so we'll design the evaluation tools, we'll conduct the evaluation, we'll do the data analysis, and then we'll, you know, come up with a report at the end. Well, no, that's not what happens. The idea is that they themselves, through the process, will actually be the, take ownership of the design of that process and what we'll do is simply provide that guidance moving forward. Mm. And, and understanding those boundaries can be quite difficult because traditionally that's not the way those people who've been in evaluations have understood it to be. And I've been certainly involved in dozens of evaluations where simply company A employs me as part of my organisation, go and do an evaluation on this program. Yeah. We don't want to know about it, you come back with a set of recommendations and that's how we've tended to function in the past. We're actually saying, well, no, you know, you, the community, are actually going to be part of this process and you're going to tell us and we're going to ask you what it is you need and why. So there's a, you know, there's that, as I said, I keep coming back to this capacity building aspect. Has business, business played a role in that at all? Because uh, I know communities, obviously, uh, on the bottom up approach, obviously, starts with communities, but yeah. The role that businesses play in, in the workplace and mental health and that and awareness and education programs and that, has that been something that's been a part of it? Look, not to the extent that we'd like to see them part of it. Um, again, understanding the landscape of Tasmania, our businesses uh, relative to some businesses on the mainland are quite small in terms of employment numbers. I think some, some businesses are acutely aware of the importance of mental health, good mental health within their organisation. But I think some of those organisations, whilst they... Uh, would love to do more in that space. They, they just don't quite know what's the best way forward in that regard. Um, if I reflect on the working groups and the different trial sites now, that's probably one area where we don't have a lot of buy-in from business, certainly council, mm. local councils involved. But when you talk about business in the sense of the corporate sector, no. Um, they're the largest employers in, in, in a lot of the uh, small rural communities. And there's plenty of opportunity there for them to, to play a role. But again, I think the onus is probably back on uh, ourselves to, 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 to actually engage with them to, to help them understand better what they can do to make, you know, to play a part mm. in supporting mental health and wellbeing in their communities. Three years or three and a bit years into it, I mean, have you found that this bottom-up approach and the model um, lifespan model, have I mean, you found it, that it's been effective in, from your I think it's too early to say. I, I really can't comment on that, Sam, to be perfectly honest. I, 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 I can't say whether it's been effective or not. I, I think it certainly uh, presents a lot of opportunities, as I've said to you a moment ago. Yeah. Uh, I think it's, you know, from my observation, it uh, provides a framework from which communities can actually think about the sort of strategies and programs and activities they want to use. Um, but it's not without its challenges, that's for sure. Uh, yeah. It's not an easy one to get its head, your head around. Um, it does require a whole lot of other things in community to come together and outside community. As I mentioned to you earlier, um, particularly some of the strategies are more problematic than others. And yeah. I think uh, the, um, the, um, uh, the designers of, the, of that approach will, will be the first to acknowledge that. Yeah. But, but it does certainly present opportunities. But yeah. as I said, those opportunities come, to, come with challenges. Yeah, and so you, I guess compared to three years ago before it was even initiated, there seems to be a lot more traction, a lot more going on, a lot more of understanding, community involvement, mm. especially in the three high-risk areas mm. that, that have been identified. Mm. So, uh, I mean, you'd have to look at that and say, well, we're better off than where we were three years ago. There's no doubt about that. Yeah. But how effective it's been is yeah. still too early. Yeah, to and I can't. It's too early to tell. We still have eight months yeah. to go on the trial. Um we're certainly, uh, we'll be looking very closely at that. We're involved uh, very consistently with the working groups and we're observing, we're using both formal and informal data to, to, to look at what we've, what we've, what's coming out of that process and um, hopefully there will be a bit more clarity as we go forward. What do you, uh, if we're looking forward in the future, how do you see uh, the future of mental health in Tasmania? Do you think it's getting better and better? The, the stigma is reducing, we're getting... Um, 
uh, a lot more education awareness mm. out there. There's a lot more tools. Access is becoming more and more available mm. with um, online, you know, more of these online digital yeah. uh, mental health programs. Do, do you feel like, are you feeling optimistic about the Well, I am, happening? again, I am and I'm not in the sense that, yes, that's, a lot of that's happening. But, yeah. you, you know, if we think of the bigger picture around the global situation, the national, you know, there's a lot more pressures now, particularly on our young people, yeah. you know, that are actually countering a lot of that sort of stuff. Mm. Um, that we're saying. So whilst in some regard we're making a lot of progress, in other ways there's been a lot of pushback through, the, you know, the financial markets crashing, the drought, yeah. you know, things that are really difficult for us to control, climate change, yeah. uh, social media, yeah. you know, it's all out there. Um, it's very difficult. That's stuff that we are pushing back against. Mm. And whilst we are getting some traction here, we're also losing traction in that space as well, and more work needs to be in that area, in in my view. Yeah, just rearranging the pieces, isn't it? It's sort of absolutely, like absolutely. It's here. it's like putting your finger in the dam. You know, you put the finger in one in one little hole there, and another one starts coming out there, and then. Yeah. But I think our trick is how do we actually be ahead of the game? Yeah, that's what we're trying to be is ahead of the game. But I certainly believe that a, a systematic, integrated, whole of population type approach at a community level has, in my view, has got lots of potential. Um, I think it needs to be. Certainly it moves us away from fragmentation, silo approaches, you know, all the things that work against that sort of collective yeah. uh, response. And learning from it, like that response, like you said, it's still got challenges that, that come yep. up with it, but how do we address those and learn from them and see what we can do to yep. move forward? Yeah. Is there much collaboration with the other 11 sites that have been trialling? Um, Do you know any of that? Look, we, I mean, one of the reasons I'm here today is is to hopefully link in with some of my colleagues um, who are involved in the South Australian site. Yeah. Um, there's an opportunity for us to do that. Um, certainly there's an opportunity. We've certainly met with the national evaluators. Um, we, you know, I guess logistically we can do only what we can do. We, you yeah. know, we have... We have, but the, the, the problem, the, the issue is, or one of the complications is that we're not all dealing with the same cohort. Yeah. Um, so that there's issues around that. And the adoption of the lifespan approach is, is different in every state. So, so you're not looking at a, a standard level. Um, but certainly where those sites are dealing with the same cohort as we're dealing with, we've got plans now to, to you know, obviously uh, work as closely as we can with them and share that understanding. I should say at this point, my understanding is we're the only state, we're the only trial site, I should say, that's actually doing a local evaluation. As right. such. That's right. There is an evaluation of the New South Wales sites, I understand. Um, uh, around Sydney, um, but we're the only one that's doing it as such. And I, I, I think, I believe the Northern Territory might be looking at doing a local evaluation as well. But so oh, we great. were the first site to come on board wow. for the local evaluation. And, and look, again, credit to uh, Primary Health Tasmania for, for, for recognising um, the importance yeah. of a local evaluation. Mm. If uh, so, so moving forward, uh, Obviously, you've been you've got a lot of experience in the mental health sector and uh, and and the community driven approach. I mean, it sounds like a really good way to go, and, and it's, um, I think there's a lot of support for that approach, definitely. And I, I don't doubt it comes with the challenge with with its challenges. Over the years, I'm sure you've met uh, a lot of influential people, or you've read some really good books. Do you have any uh, Do you have any recommendations for our listeners on on either some good books to read? Uh, <laughs> That um, whether it's mental health related or personal development, is there anything that stood out for you, Stuart? Look, I guess for me, the important thing, and this is where I come back to all the time, it's about first understanding the dynamics of community development and community work, particularly in a rural context. So for me, if I was to recommend any readings or any, it's really, it's those articles that actually, and those books that actually refer to to that level of work, because I think that's the stepping stone. Yeah. If you don't understand that, it doesn't matter how good your model's gonna be, mm. it's, it, you know, the potential for it to fall apart is quite significant. So it, it's starting at step one, which is actually understanding who it is you're working with. What are the things that enable and prevent communities from working together and taking action at a local level? Work, 
so it's really about understanding strength-based and work with your strengths, work with the community strengths, I should say. So don't look for the barriers, look for the strengths, but understand what those barriers are because yeah. you will come across them. So for me, if, if you would ask me, where do people start understanding about, it is about understanding some of those models of theories around um, uh, strength-based and capacity building, some work from Patton, um, some papers on Patton are very good, and I think it's Federwood is another author who is worth looking at as well. Okay. But, you know, it's it's an emerging, It's the, the exciting thing about working in, in that space is that, uh, and you hear it all the time, you know, communities are so different. Um, it was just referred to a moment again, see one community, just seeing one community. and But it is, there are some fundamental principles that you will see uh, within communities and you work with those strengths and, and that's where you start from. Doesn't matter whether you're working with mental health, chronic disease management, whatever. It's it's about understanding those sociological um, uh, founda- founding uh, foundation blocks. Mm. Well, it sounds. Uh, oh, it's been really interesting having a chat to you, and we appreciate you shedding uh, a light on everything that's going on in Tasmania, but also in the recent work that you've been doing with the National Suicide Prevention Trial. Um, I'm looking forward to hearing more about it, and and as as it comes to a maybe an end or maybe a continuum next year in July or June. Uh, hopefully it can, can maintain its funding and continue on. But uh, I appreciate all the work you're doing out there. Have you got any um, final words you want to say before we round it out? Uh, look, no, I think I appreciate the opportunity. Thank you. And I, uh, I'd, I'd be really interested if there's any listener feedback on that. But uh, certainly yeah. from, from our perspective, um, we, um, we are optimistic and, and we think that this is, I mean, clearly... It was as the Mental Health Commission uh, came up with in two, uh, 2015, it was time to review mm. programs and services and how we go about doing things. And for me, this is actually, this whole trial is really about taking a regional focused approach mm. um, and drawing in the capacity and the strengths of the community and combining it with strong leadership. And I think really, and underpinning it, wrapping it around uh, a model, a framework, which yeah. is your, your lifespan. So. Uh, I think personally, this is a, a really good opportunity, and a good chance for us to have a crack at hopefully making a difference. Well, um, yeah, I mean, we're all uh, obviously hoping that that happens and, and hopefully we can see the impact and, and those communities uh, especially um, can be better off for it. And I'm, I'm no doubt they will yeah. be, but uh, looking forward to the outcome of that. So thanks very much, Stuart, for joining us today and appreciate your time and thank you very much and we'll hear from you in the future. Been a pleasure. Thanks, Sam. Thank you very much. Is there someone working in mental health who you'd like to be featured on the podcast? Are there more questions you want the answers to? Let us know what you want to hear. Get in touch with us by emailing any podcast suggestions to membership at anzmh.asn.au and be sure to stay up to date on our socials at anzmha on Facebook Twitter and LinkedIn. Thank you very much for listening and we look forward to sharing our next conversation.